19, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it was 1940, and it was springtime in France. World War II was in full swing. And Hitler had unleashed a military onslaught on France and Belgium. The British army, alongside of multiple or various ally soldiers, were trapped on the northern beach of France, the place of Dunkirk. Now, the scene was so grim that the grand commander of the German army pronounced, proclaimed, arrogantly said that the German troops were prepared and just about to completely decimate the whole British military. Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England, was preparing to tell the nation that 335,000 British soldiers were destroyed. Now, if you've seen um, Christopher Nolan's you know, rendition of Dunkirk, or you've watched Anthony McCartan's The The Darkest Hour, um, either of these moments, we've kind of leaned back in as of late the story of Dunkirk. And you may remember if you've seen this or heard this story that the ally soldiers, I mean, their end was imminent. But also if you've heard this story, you know that that end never comes. Not in this way, not at this time. For many We've maybe heard of the rescue, the heroic rescue of these soldiers there at Dunkirk. But as I was doing some research in this story, there was a really important part of this story that's often left untold. You see, before the rescue expedition, it was May 23rd, 1940, King George VI declared the following Sunday a national day of prayer. I don't know maybe if you've ever heard this. The Saturday before that Sunday... The nation had made a decision at that moment to go about a rescue plan to go and get these soldiers no matter the cost. 
Well, on that Sunday, on this National Day of Prayer, eyewitness accounts approve of this. There's photographs that historically document this. The churches were overwhelmed. They were crowded to the max. I mean, people were waiting out in the streets in order to pray that God might actually do the impossible all across England. And this was before any of the men came with their boats to offer an opportunity to go and rescue these besieged soldiers. Now, on the same day of this national day of prayer, when men and women were gathered together to pray that God would do the impossible, there was the call that went out and said, hey, we need everybody to be a part of this. If you've got a boat, we need you. We need your boat to go get our boys. And 800 boats responded. 800, I mean, more than 800 folks, but 800 boats responded. After that Sunday, on that Tuesday, the weather was so terrible that the Luftwaffe, you know, it's kind of like the German equivalent of our U.S. Air Force, they were grounded. They could not fly because the weather was so terrible. The very next day on Wednesday, the seas were so calm that the rescue boats that went to go, cap, you know, and, and rescue these soldiers, it was made so much easier when they got to the, to the shores to get the soldiers because the sea was so calm. Before any of the prayers went out, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but this is the mystery of prayer. Sometimes even before we begin to pray, God has already been working to accomplish our prayers. Before anybody gathered together for, for prayer for God to do the impossible, Hitler had made a decision that frustrated his generals and continues to baffle historians to this day. He commanded that the German troops stop their forward momentum. No one can explain why. No one. No one has an explanation why he would do this. But he commanded that the German troops stop. And for three days during this rescue expedition, the German troops held their line instead of making a forward progress. By the time the German troops began to resume their forward momentum, over 475,000 troops were evacuated from the shores of Dunkirk, which included the majority of the British army alongside of many other ally soldiers. Historians agree that if this didn't happen, if this did not occur, chances were nearly 100% that Germany would have won World War II. Now, I think some of us and maybe many of us have heard of the heroic rescue of the story of Dunkirk, but that's not the way they saw it in the year of 1940. Winston Churchill dubbed, and all of England saw this as the miracle of Dunkirk, where God did the impossible through everyday folks. And I have to be honest, when I was doing some research and thinking through this story, I thought, okay, this is a myth. Like, there's no way that this actually happened. But the reality is, if you look through the history, is that the churches were overcrowded. People were praying and deeply believed that nothing was too hard for the Lord. And either coincidence after coincidence after, historians agree, nonsensical coincidence occurred. Or God did something. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, when you hear that question, it like stops you. It demands your attention. When you go to the text and you actually look at this word for hard, 
It has a broader range. It could mean, and you see this in some of our translations, is anything too hard? Is anything too wonderful? Is anything too incredible for the Lord? Now, we know the correct answer to that, don't we? And yet when it comes to intersect with the impossible things in our own lives, in our own context, that's when the doubts start to creep in. We know the right answer if you're a good Christian, if I'm a good pastor, right? No, of course, nothing is too impossible for God. But if I'm honest, and if you're honest with yourself, that's really hard to believe. It's one thing to say, nothing is too hard for the Lord. It's another thing entirely to go about the long walk of faith, leaning into that. It's another thing altogether to lean so hard in the midst of the trenches of spiritual warfare, holding on to hope in the midst of an impossible situation. And by God's grace, we come to an episode within history, a moment where God reveals, he gives us a raw and honest glimpse of what it actually looks like to lean into the truth, the honest response to that claim that no, there's nothing too hard for the Lord, but how it actually plays out in life. And what we find are, I think, three expectations. Three expectations that we need to have about this long road of obedience, this long walk of faith that I think often surprise us, but shouldn't. Three things that we can bank on. And if we come to understand them, if we come to not be surprised, it's going to help us better traverse what real life with God over the long haul looks like. And so encourage us to walk it to the end. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. That's found on page number 12 if you're using one of our community Bibles. Now, the opening scene of our passage reveals something to you and I as the reader that Abraham has yet to come to understand. And, and this is what we see. Genesis 18 verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So here we, we find Abraham. He's about to have this face-to-face -face experience and encounter with God again. But there's something really different about that. There's three strangers who have walked up. They've come up to him and they startle him. They surprise him. Chances are really good in the middle of the heat of the day he was taking a nap. And he wakes up and he finds these three men. And what we read right here is that one of these three men is God himself. We don't know how. But somehow, one of these is God. And Abraham, he runs before these three men and he bows down with his face in the dirt and he begs them. And this is common Middle Eastern hospitality to some degree. He begs them, he says, come, come, come. I know you've got a journey ahead of you, but will you please stop for a morsel of bread and some water and rest yourselves? But what he does is beyond even... The, the extravagant form of hospitality, at least from our seat on the bus, this ex, before, beyond this extravagant form of hospitality you experience still in the Middle East today, he doesn't just give them a morsel of bread and some water. He brings together a feast. He tells Sarah to what? Get together six seas of flour. That's a lot of bread. That's a lot of bread. And then he goes and tells one of his servants to go and slaughter a calf. So he creates some steak. You get a little bread. This is, this is going well. And then he gets some cheese curds as an appetizer. So it's all coming together. 
And here's why Abraham knows there's something really special about these guys. He can't put his finger all on it yet, but he knows there's something really special. And his suspicions are confirmed when we get down to verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. We've been in this story of Abraham for a while now. I mean, for the past five weeks, as we've been walking through the book of Genesis, we've been talking about and learning about the story of what God is doing through Abraham. And really, we've just scratched the surface. I mean, there's so much more as a Bible nerd that I'd love to continue to unpack. I mean, it's beautiful. It's rich. The promises that have so much implications for your life and mine today and broader global realities. But back in Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to give him a son. And for the past five weeks, over the past six chapters, the last 24 years of Abraham's life, he has nothing to show for it. No son, no child, only a promise for 24 years. And promise after promise after promise, God is saying, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. And now he appears and says, okay, you only got one more year to go. One year to go. Think about this. It took God a quarter of a century to fulfill one promise. Listen, if you take up life with God, you have to get used to waiting for him. And if you wait for him long enough, you will, not you could, not that you might, you will feel forgotten sometimes. And there's no doubt we've seen that again and again with Abraham and Sarah waiting and wait 25 years for what felt like it was going to be tomorrow. Feeling forgotten, asking the question, God, what are you doing? You know, I was... Um, I had lunch with a colleague of mine uh, with Made to Flourish, which is this organization where I also work to help pastors across the city connect faith and work and economic integration as informed from our biblical worldview. And I was going to meet him for lunch, and I got there early, secured our table, and I'm sitting there, and I pick out my drink. Five minutes pass. Okay, he's a little late. It's not a big deal. So I pick out my meal, and I think, okay, 10 minutes are late. I'm just going to send him a text. Nothing. I call, go straight to voicemail, right? And at that point, I stop thinking, I'm going to wait for him. And I start worrying, did he forget me, <laughs> right? There's this moment where you shift from going, he's going to come to, oh my goodness, I'm going to be here alone. And sure enough, he did forget, um, but it's okay. I ate a great lunch and he paid for it. So it all worked out <laughs> in that regard. But listen, listen, listen. Our expectations rarely line up with God's timing. And when the further that or the bigger that gap is, the more we stop feeling like we're waiting on God and the more we begin to feel like God has forgotten us. For some of us, it's when you send a text and you don't get a response in the next couple minutes. When you're at a restaurant and someone's more than 10 minutes late, 
when you send an email and you don't get a response in the next couple days? What about 25 years? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, faith involves, and this long walk of faith involves a lot of waiting with God. And sometimes when you're waiting, it can feel like he's forgotten you. It can feel that way. And you know, it's not just here with Abraham and Sarah. If you go to another really well-known character across the biblical narrative, if you go to one of the most well-known kings in Israel's history, King David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. If you go to Psalm 13, when he's walking with God, and it's not because of what he's about to say, is not because of sin in his life or he sometimes somehow abandoned God. He's just in the throes of leaning into God's promises and in the midst of a broken world, he cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Feeling forgotten. It's something that often surprises us in the long walk of faith, but it shouldn't. Because God's timetable is rarely ours, and in the further that gap it feels in Him delivering on His promises, the more often we begin to feel like God has forgotten us. Where do you feel like God has forgotten you? I mean, if God is all-powerful and He's all-loving, and he's perfectly good and he's just. When we experience pain, turmoil, or heartache, it's in those moments sometimes we can ask ourselves, God, do you see? I know you care for me. Or when are you going to intervene? When are you going to step in? When are you going to bring about deliverance? It can feel like you're still waiting on the shore looking for those boats that are coming to rescue you. And you still have no sign of rescue. And you begin to ask not only... Is God coming, but will he come at all? Is he not just running late, but is he going to come at all? Will you wait for him? Can you wait for him? Can God take you on a 25-year journey? Because listen, you know, sometimes when we're in church, we can talk about these robust stories of faith and think, well, I can never measure up. I, I want you to know that when you have these moments like you feel like you've been forgotten, it's not that you've lost your faith. You're just stepping deep into the throes of the training ground of genuine faith. It's not an uncommon experience in the Christian walk. You haven't lost your way, but frankly, you might be walking in the exact direction that God has you. And listen, the longer you find yourself in this waiting space and the longer you feel like you're forgotten by God, in the moment that you hear afresh God's promises, you will laugh, but not in a good way. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what we see here with Sarah? God says, hey, listen, listen, I know it's taken a while, 24 years, um, but this next year, you're finally going to have the son that I promised. And what's Sarah's response? Look with me here at verses 11 and 12. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? According to Sarah in this moment, yes. This seems ridiculous. And she laughs in cynicism. Now, most laughter, common, or contrary to, to popular belief, is not because of humor. Did you know this? I was doing some research on this. But actually, most laughter is usually like a nervous response to uncomfortable circumstances in your life. Whether it be surprise, stress, fear, anxiety. For example, fun little tidbit. Um, my mom would tell you this if she was here. When we go to funerals, she giggles. It's really awkward. So we have to sit in the back. And it's not like she's broken over the death of a loved one. But that's just like, she just starts laughing. And so we have to sit her in the back. And it's not funny, but it is to watch her struggle not to laugh when she knows it's in a... Anyway, so there's this moment. Laughter, it's a response. Often, it's, it's, it's often, un, you know, subconscious. It's something that just bubbles up and comes out. And it reveals this uncomfortable nature that's going on deep under the surface. And it often can reveal our hearts. And can you blame Sarah in this moment? Everything she's been through. She got married. And we saw right back in Genesis 11 that when they were married, they found out that Sarah was barren. That she couldn't have children. So for decades, they're in this marriage and she can't have children. And then finally, her husband comes back and says, God promised that they were going to have a son. 24 years later, she still has nothing. I mean, she's tried everything. And now we see in the text, her body has gone through the transition that makes it impossible in human terms to actually have a child, let alone think about giving birth to a child at her age, nursing a child in recovery in the midst of an infant mortality rate that's through the roof without modern medicine. And then you got these strangers who show up to her tent and say, hey, next year you're going to finally have a kid. Can you blame her? And I want to be very clear. Sarah's not the only one who laughs here. If you go back to Genesis chapter 17, you may remember from last week we said, you know, when God came and peered before Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. And then Abraham fell on his face. That's verse 3. If you go to chapter 17, verse 17, God says, now Sarah's going to have a child. Abram falls on his face again, but this time he laughs in the face of God. Sarah's not the only one who laughs. We often look at her and go, oh, Sarah. No, it's Sarah and Abraham. They both are just, okay, seriously, now God? Now when we're old? Now you want to do this? And listen, the longer, <laughs> right? Out of the mouth of babes. The longer you wait on him and you really lean into his call on your life, if you're actually generous the way he's called you to be generous, if you seek purity the way he's called you to seek purity, if you forgive liberally and you lean deep into love even though you've been wounded, when you go against the grain, when you allow his word to be the primary direction in your life, listen, there are going to come moments where you're going to be waiting on him to come through and it's going to feel like it was longer than you were anticipating. And in that moment, you're going to feel forgotten. And then you're going to hear the promises of God again. And the longer you go down this journey, there are going to come these moments where cynicism will bubble up. And you're going to laugh. But not in a good way. Because cynicism comes all too easy in the midst of a broken world. Let's return to the text. You know, it's really fascinating what happens Next, and, and all of our questions about who are these guests becomes abundantly clear when you get to verses 13 through 15. We read, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. We would do that too, like somebody catches you and you didn't even know they heard you. It's like, you said that. I didn't say that. I mean, I said that. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Sarah has this internal monologue, laughs to herself, and God hears it. The unbelievable mystery of our God who knows our hearts better than we often admit. And he comes and he confronts her cynicism. But notice how he doesn't. He doesn't shame her and say, how dare you? He just says, hey, you laughed. And she says, no, I didn't. And he said, yes, you did. He wants her to see the cynicism that's grown in her heart. And he wants her to know that he sees it too. And every time there's a question, it's an invitation for intimacy. And here, God is inviting intimacy. Is anything too hard for the Lord, Sarah? Is anything? He's inviting dialogue. He's inviting her in to see what's really going on in her heart and to really see who he is and all of his power and all of his wonder and his awe. And if you lean in to God's call on your life, there are going to come moments where you're going to laugh. You're going to wait. You're going to feel forgotten. And cynicism might naturally start to bubble up. Just be honest with him. He already sees it. He's inviting you to share it with him. He's not expecting it to never show itself in your life. So let me ask you this morning, where are you laughing? Which of God's promises are you laughing at today? Because in those moments where you begin to laugh to yourself, you can experience so much pain that your pain becomes louder than God's promises. Isn't that what we see here with Sarah? She stops listening to God's promises and starts listening to her own voice. I'm too old. My husband's too old. I'm worn out. I'll never know any pleasure. And in the midst of the foghorn of pain, she can't hear the whisper of God's promise. Don't be surprised when you see this bubble up within you. When you're, and hear me, like if you're, if you're not going to follow the call that God has on your life and you just want to have this moniker Christian, then you may not have this because you're choosing a lot of comfort in your life that's enabled you to be quite cozy. So you may not find yourself asking this question, but when you actually lean into the call, when you're actually following him into the unknown, when he's calling you to a space that feels extremely uncomfortable, you will feel like you're waiting on him. You will feel forgotten at times. You will feel the urge to laugh even in the face of God's promises. So don't be surprised, okay? That's what undercuts us. Instead, be honest with him. Allow the Psalms to be your tour guide in the midst of confusion. Allow Sarah and Abraham to also be an example in the midst of this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, but don't be surprised when you find yourself laughing. But not in a good way. Because Jesus is inviting us down a narrow path isn't that what he said? 
He's invited us to pick up our cross and follow him. He's invited us to put on a yoke of submission. He's invited us to die a death. And so it shouldn't be surprising. But it's the only way and the only path to life. You see, even in the midst of waiting way beyond than we, than we anticipated, way beyond what we had planned, and we feel like we, we feel forgotten by God, and even in the midst of all of this, we, we're surprised, but we find ourselves laughing in cynicism to God's promises. The only reason we keep walking down this path is because when we stare our own faithlessness in the face, We can lean hard into a bedrock expectant hope, and it's this. He will keep his promises. He will keep his promises. You see, Abram, Abraham and Sarah, they laughed at God's promises, but they still believed. Isn't that fascinating? In God's economy, and the way he's looking at Abraham and Sarah, he has a framework where both cynicism and faith somehow coexist for a period. They knew it was bizarre, so much so that it made them laugh, but they still believe, they still lean in to God's promise, as crazy as it seemed. And you know what's absolutely fascinating is that God eventually comes through. If you go to Genesis chapter 21, turn a page or two here, one page, and go down to verse 5, we read, One year later, so Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. God gave them the son he promised. His name, Isaac, means laughter. The very name. And in the birth and in the fulfillment of his promise, he turns their laughter of cynicism into a laughter of fulfillment and joy. Now, one thing that's really important to note here, and I just want to make it explicit, is that this is a very specific promise to a very specific couple, right? This is something that God was doing very beautifully and uniquely through Abraham and Sarah for the world. So don't walk out of here expecting a baby boom with senior citizens, right? Like that's an obvious good expectation not to say, oh, we just had a baby boom, you know. <laughs> And, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he picks up on this story. I know it sounds absurd, but, you know, you've got to be clear on this, right? Paul picks up on this story in his letter to the church of Rome. So in Romans chapter 4, he picks back up and he says, you know, even in the midst of all of this, in verse 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I just, I absolutely, Paul has a good sense of humor. I'm not dead yet. Like, you know, I think of that. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham and Sarah even in the midst of all the factors that were going against them. Yes, they, they felt like they had been waiting forever. They felt like at times they had been forgotten, and so they took some drastic disobedient measures that still had repercussions on the broader global scheme or scene. But, then, but even in the midst of this laughter, they still leaned into the call. Absurd as it is. I mean, think about their situation. 
This God comes up out of nowhere and says, go to a land, I'm going to give you a son. And they went. As insane as everything felt. And God came through for them and he gave them their son. But what about us? What's our promise? If you keep reading down here in Romans chapter 4, verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, it will be counted to us. So rightness before God will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And as you read through the remainder of the letter of Romans, we come to see that because of Jesus Christ, we have unbelievable promises that no matter how we may feel, you will never be forgotten. No matter our faithlessness, your laughter of cynicism will be forgiven. And in the end, you will be delivered. These are the promises we have anchored in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that have been offered to you and to me. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, with my kids, um, I'm constantly living with the disappointment look in their eyes. <laughs> you know, they'll come up to me. I can't tell you how many times they come up with like a toy that has just been utterly decimated. I feel like they put it under a semi-truck. Dad, can you glue this back together? No. Uh, we have to throw that away. Like, that is gone. Uh, or they'll come up and ask me questions like, Dad, what does God look like? I don't know. I, you know it's not what you've seen in your little Bible books. You know, I, I don't know what he looks like. Um, or they'll come up, you know, and the worst ones are like with their cuts and bruises and wounds. And they'll say, Dad, can you take the pain away? You know, and you're just like, no. <laughs> you know, it's so, it's unbelievable. They come to me. And I feel like this is just, it's, it's almost natural with children. They come to their parents and they think nothing's too hard for mom or dad. Nothing's too hard for them, right? And over and over again, I disappoint them. <laughs> and it's laughable, really. And as we get older, cynicism creeps in or maybe realism. And we come to understand that about other human beings, that we want to trust them, but we see that failure is way more common than reliability, or that comp competency and capacity and character don't match up to our desires. When we come to the God of the Bible, our Heavenly Father, He is wholly different than any other experience we've had with any human being. Yeah, His timetable is longer than we would choose. Yeah, his ways are so much better than ours, so they feel extraordinarily foreign at times. But his end game is way more beautiful than we can even fathom. And you know what he invites us to? It's what Jesus invites us to when he was here. Before he died and rose again, he invites each of us now back to that childlike faith. Where we look to our Heavenly Father and we say, nothing is too hard for you like a child does to their parents. When they're early on, before they've been jaded by the brokenness of the world and the brokenness that's within us. When we come before a perfect God who's holy, who longs for our good, who's been about the redemption of his creation from the dawn of time, he invites us now back into that trust. And what a promising future he has promised us in him. That one day, 
his son. If you go to the book of Revelation, this last book when it's pointing to forward things, things that are yet to come and the promises and how they're going to culminate and how at the, at the end Jesus will indeed win over all brokenness and all pain and all sorrow. When we look to that day, Jesus will come in the clouds and will be like soldiers there on the beaches of Dunkirk where he will come and he will rescue us before the enemy comes to trample. And it will make not, no sense to most of the rest of the world and it'll feel like you know circumstance after circumstance after circumstance circumstance and all of these chance pieces, but it'll be finally God fulfilling his promises where your waiting will be no more. Your laughter will turn into this gut level laughter of joy rather than cynicism. Your tears will be wiped away and pain will be nothing more than a distant nightmare that'll feel untrue. And then in that moment, all the waiting, as long as it may have taken, will make sense and it will have been worth it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Don't be surprised. The boats are coming. Let's walk the shores of this life with eyes wide open, expectant of his faithfulness. And this is also why we come to the Lord's Supper every week. Because every week we need to hear it's spoken to us that you are not forgotten that you are invited, that he sees you, that he is present with you. Every week we need to hear the, the promise of God in Christ for us. That he came, that he died for us according to what he has promised. And unlike Abraham, we don't come bringing together our morsels of bread and water and even as best as our steak and cheese curds might be. We come instead to a meal that God has invited us to. That he wants to give liberally to all who will come and receive him and what he has done in Jesus, who is the culmination of promises over generations, not just, not just years. Such that the Apostle Paul says in Galatians that at just the right time, not our time, but God's time and what he's doing in the world, Christ came. And if God will keep his promise to give his son to die for us, to rise again, and has the power over death. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. We eat and we remember. We feast with him and celebrate. Let's pray. God, one of our greatest temptations is presentism being consumed with the pain, being overtaken with impatience, and being consumed with promises that we expect to be fulfilled today but will be fulfilled in your perfect timing. You are God and we are not. And praise you for that. May your spirit do what he does best in cultivating the fruit of the spirit within us of patience. May we rest in knowing that you are making us whole, that you have forgiven us, that you will not forget about us, and that one day you will indeed deliver us to the fullest. Help us in our sinfulness and our brokenness and our limited purview to wait and to walk this, and to run this race, rather, with endurance. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.